Welcome to the podcast, Life Lessons from Travels Off the Beaten Path. Hi, my name is Justine Murray, and I'm also known as Lighter Step Justine, as we strive to step lightly across the earth and only leave footprints. This podcast is about the life lessons I've learned as a traveler, particularly when I decided to step off the beaten path. Mostly this occurred in the non-digital era when there was no internet or mobile phones. My sometimes bizarre and always unforgettable adventures around the globe, often as a solo woman traveller, gave me great insight into living a fulfilled life, blessed with all my senses, to enjoy the wonders the world has to offer. From wildlife encounters, to midnight crashes, to dodging stalkers and trekking with tribes, to travelling with a child and around work commitments. I will entertain you with my stories and what each adventure has taught me, along with some general travel and life wisdom along the way. I also will be bringing in other travellers who can captivate us with their own travel stories and the life lessons they have learned. So tune in to me each week and let's get entertained with travel. So I left the last episode. I was down in Cape Town and I had decided I was going to go back home to Australia because I was six months pregnant and I would soon have a baby. But if you know anything about me, I never like to leave anything half finished and I hadn't finished Africa and I really didn't want to leave Africa. I loved Africa. It was like my adopted continent and I hadn't been to all the countries. Of course, I wasn't going to the countries that were either had internal conflict or wars happening. Um, but there were some countries that I'd missed, and some of these was uh, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zan- Zambia. And so, I booked a overland trip, leaving from Johannesburg to take me through Namibia, Botswana and Zimbabwe and just just the edge of Zambia uh, for the last three and a half weeks of my stay in Africa. And of course, uh, as part of this trip, you have to have travel insurance. And so I bought one. I really had to check the terms and conditions and I was luckily I found one that said it covers people up to seven months pregnant. So I said, that's okay. I'm only six months and I'll just fit it in before the trip will finish before I'm seven months. So it's okay. I'm I'm covered. But of course I didn't tell anybody. And so I caught the, the bus, the, the public bus from Cape Town back up to Johannesburg, Joburg and which was um uneventful yeah very pretty flat country and i got lots of farmland and mining areas and and then i was there for i don't know half a week or so and then i was was able to catch the the truck leaving from Joburg. And so we we drove in the truck 
up the west coast of Republic of South Africa, uh, all the way up to into Namibia, and we came into um, through the Kalahari Desert. And it's really interesting because Kalahari Desert is quite large. It's uh, it covers most of Botswana, a bit of Angola, uh, Namibia, and um, a little bit in South Africa. And it's different to other deserts in that it's actually got quite a bit of vegetation. It's a desert is described for a minimum amount of uh, rainfall it receives on average per year. So if only has um, if it's for below a certain threshold, then it's classified as a desert. And this fitted in here, uh, but there was quite a bit of vegetation, a lot of shrubby type plants, uh, trees, and so the trees were things like um, your acacias, uh, boab trees, sausage tree, and uh, there's quite a lot of wildlife as well. And throughout our drive through Namibia, we saw quite a bit of wildlife. And, the, you know, common animals we saw were cheetahs. We saw a lot of cheetahs, which was quite amazing considering not that long ago, the cheetahs were nearly hunted to, into extinction, but from a very small gene pool, they're able to come back and and uh, reach greater numbers. And they're particularly there's a particular stronghold of cheetahs in Namibia because there is less of the the other predators there, so they have more of a um, a chance to to survive, and the litters survive. Uh, and, and of course, there's, there is lions in Namibia, but not so many. And um, there's hyenas, there's jackals. Uh, I don't know about leopards, um, but there's definitely less. So there's a lot more cheetahs. Uh, and then there's of course uh, the oryx or the gemsbok, beautiful antelope, just with the big, long, uh, straight horns. Uh, and then there was um, heart beast, heart beast, which is you know the reason why they're called a heart beast because like their horns are like in the shape of a heart. Wildebeest, uh, impala, jackals, black black jackals. Uh, saw some vultures um, and ostriches. I also saw um, a brown hyena, which was quite amazing the brown hyena is really different to its cousin the spotted hyena which you see in most of savannah areas in that it's um it's got a really shaggy coat really long hair and its actual legs are striped and it's a little bit smaller than the spotted hyena spotted hyena is also in Namibia, but um the, the Brown hyenas in the southern part of the Namibia in the uh, sort of smaller areas. I think it appears also a bit in South Africa and um, Botswana. And I still think they're beautiful. I love hyenas. They they serve a very important role in the ecosystem in cleaning up um, dead animals and crunching the bones and uh, 
you know, cleaning up the carrion and also they can hunt at times as well. Uh, and then, oh, there, there was a lot of the weaver birds with building their nests. They build nests on it's like an apartment, you know, nest upon nest upon nest. And they build it in the trees and so the trees are just absolutely covered in these nests. And then the plants are quite unique as well. And so, you know, there's a there's a plant that's nearly or around 2,000 years old. It's called the Wellwitchia plant. And it's found in the Nanukov Luft Desert. And it's actually a conifer. It looks more like a part of the... Uh, aloe vera family but it's actually a conifer and it only grows up to a meter high around about and only has two leaves but the leaves are really long so i think they're the longest leaves in the world but because they live in a desert where there's not much cover and they have lots of strong winds and sandstorms the, the actual leaves are shredded into ribbons so it looks like it has a lot more leaves than it does than it does naturally and they have these um, brown cup-like things in which the, the flowers appear. When I saw it, there was no flowers, but uh, it, was, it was quite a unique plant. And, you know, it was around when BC changed to AD, so pretty amazing, actually. Um, and then I was driving through, we were camping all the time. We'd stop on the side and we'd camp. And some of the times the camps were registered camps and other times they weren't. But uh, I remember one camp, uh, they had a shower there. It was really nice to go and have a shower. But the, they only had cold water in the shower. And I don't know if you ever travel in the desert, but it was winter. It was June, July. So it was cold. But, you know, deserts get very hot during the day but it had it was winter and temperatures drop at night in the desert so actually at night it was getting to like minus five degrees and of course it was only a cold shower and and i remember the truck driver saying the leader said you know if you want a shower you have to have a shower we're going to leave really early you have to have a shower before you before you go so i decided i was going to have a shower and so there I was first thing in the morning having this cold shower in uh, minus five degrees and I was having a cold shower as like probably one of those um, ice plungers. It was ridiculously cold and, um, uh, you know, like, you know how your heart stops when it's something so cold? That's what it felt like. But uh, I was clean at the end, so it was okay. Uh and then we, we kept driving along. We got to um, the – oh, we, we went and saw the, the ghost towns where they're, um, you know, they mined diamonds and when the diamonds would run out, they would just leave the town. And what happens is the sand comes in and – 
takes over the buildings and so that you know you knee deep or or higher in sand and it, it's quite amazing seeing this sand come over and you know slowly very very slowly over thousands of years for more hundreds of years they're all engulf the that infrastructure of those buildings and you could see action in progress um some of the other we were driving along some of the other unique trees that were pointed out was uh, the quiver tree which is a kokobum in Afrikaans now the quiver tree is a succulent and it is actually the national tree of Namibia and the sand people the bushmen would take the branches and because the branches were hollow and the bark was uh, poor so we used to be able to hold water and first off they stored water in it or else they used them as um quivers for their arrows for when they were hunting and if you know anything of the bushmen you know these were the days when there was no um internet to check out things or anything so the only thing i really knew about the bushmen was the movie um the gods must be crazy and so when we went there everyone knew about the their little poison arrows and so the poison is is created by uh crushing the they would find these beetle larvae which were un, underground and they dig them up and then they crush them and this is the poison they would add to their arrows so that when they shot an animal because their arrows were quite small uh, and it wouldn't probably pull down a big antelope but with the poison on it it changed everything and then they would just follow the the antelope until the poison did its effect and killed the animal and then they were able to take the animal back and uh and use the, every part of the animal was used nothing was wasted this is a typical hunter gather gatherer tribe that did not waste anything and so that's how the quiver tree got its name um another tree that was common was the boab tree i just love boab trees they look like they've been planted upside down because they have most of the time they have no branches of no leaves on their branches they just look like a tree with the roots in the air but they do get leaves and they do have fruit at times they can live for hundreds of years hundreds and they can grow very big and they also store a lot of water as well when this you know storing water this is a desert country it's really important so the San people used to know where these trees and places were so they were always able to get water when they needed to uh, and then, of course, there were the acacia trees, which is the big umbrella acacia trees. And they, there were thorn trees, big thorns on them, but they provided shade. So 
you know, very common for the Sam people to be under the shade of the trees. But we also, when we were drawing, we would camp under the trees and put the tents under the trees, you know, sweep so we'd get rid of the thorns and then we'd camp there because it was too hot under the sun. Uh, and then so we continued on and we got to Fish River Canyon. Now, it's um, the biggest canyon in Africa and it's um, 160 kilometres long, not as big as Grand Canyon obviously, but it's still pretty big and uh, it's up to 27 kilometres wide, it's the widest place, and up to 550 metres deep. Um, it was formed by the Fish River down the bottom that floods every year around late summer and then that dries off into long chains of narrow water holes and pools of water during the the rest of the year. So we arrived at Fish River Canyon. There's uh, lookouts along the way. Uh, and you, so you can look out over the canyon. Um, absolutely stunning. Very, very um, stark because of the landscape. Uh, desert landscape uh, but still stunning terrain uh, and then we camped on the rim and in the morning before first light we actually walked down to the the base of the canyon uh, we went down to the wild fig bend and there's a pool where we were able to have a swim and relax for a little while and before it got too hot again, we walked back up out of the canyon. Um, now, obviously, it, you go at 550 metres deep, so it would have taken a few hours. I, I, I can't remember, actually, if it, how strenuous it was. I don't recall it being that strenuous. But, it, of course, it, it, it's not a walk in the park either. Um, but it was, it was a, a nice walk and... Um, nice scenery and there's trails all around the fish river canyon so it's very it's well worth a visit and then we drove on to sausage bay and sausage bay is a big salt pan surrounded by very large sand dunes and on one side of the the biggest sand dune there called big daddy and Big Daddy was 350 metres high. And then on the other side was this, what they call Dead Vale. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. This is all Afrikaans, which meant Dead Marsh. So basically that was a white clay pan. And it, the way it was formed, it once was flooded. It had flooding from the river. And gradually with climate change and sand dunes move, moving all the time, the the access to the river was blocked and that that marsh which had grown vegetation and and these camel thorn trees were growing there um dried up the the water dried up and so the trees died the trees died about six to seven hundred years ago and they have since been blackened by the sun by being scorched by the sun and but they 
haven't decomposed or petrified or anything because they're just too dry there's absolutely no moisture in them so it's absolutely amazing contrast and subject of many pictures where you have these this you know white pan salt pan and then you have these black dead trees silhouettes of trees and then up against the bright red of the sand dunes behind it and just stunning now one of the things to do besides walking around and looking at dead veil and all that is to climb the sand dunes and so of course we were all challenged to to see if we could climb big daddy the biggest sand dune of them all uh and you know there was about 20 people in the truck and of course i had to be one of the ones that had to take up the challenge i just couldn't say no and to climb the sand dune and so there was about six of us including including me that climbed up and i remember half to three quarters of the way up because every time you took a step you slid back too it was so tough and the the difference with this these sand dunes because you remember i was in sahara desert as well and i did climb those sand dunes but these sand dunes were were knife edge the the wind was so strong coming off the ocean because this is quite close to the the coastline that um they performed it's like this knife edge and on the whereas in sahara it's that they're more rounded and so uh you know you you walk you're just walking on this knife edge going up and and it was um you know one step up two steps back one step up two so you eventually but oh you know half to three quarters of the way up my heart was felt like it was pounding out of my chest it was so strenuous and don't forget i also was you know six and a half months pregnant by now and um <laughs> i'm climbing this sand dune and i really regret this is another time i regretted my actions because it's like oh i'm an idiot what happens if i if i have a heart attack my heart felt so pounding it was pounding so strongly and um And I fell off the sand dune because it's a it's quite steep on the other side. But anyway, I got to the top, and it was well worth it. It was beautiful views all the way around, looking at the stunning colours and the contrasting colours, the 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 ridge lines of the of the you know the sharp lines of the sand dunes, and they were all contoured and, and amazing against the um the white clay pans. And then we, after we left there, you know, we had camped for a day there, and then we went on to Windhoek. Now, Windhoek is the capital of Namibia. Uh, it's a German town. If you, if you know, the Namibia was colonised by Germany uh, in the 1800s, uh, and they called it the German Southwest Africa, uh, and they held it to around 1915. And this coincides with World War One. We all know what happened with World War One in Germany. Uh, so they they left Africa, and South Africa took over, and they South Africa formed a military government and ruled 
Namibia as Southwest Africa till 1990 where Namibia got its independence. So it wasn't that long, this is 1995, it hasn't been that long that Namibia had been independent, but it definitely had the influence of Germany because it was really strange. You're walking in this you know, desert city and there's these bright green irrigated lawns. Uh, and then they had the, the buildings where some of the buildings were German influence. You know, you got those, um, you know, the white buildings with the brown wood structure outside. So there's a few of them. There's some castles with the turrets and the um, the European look about them. So I mean, I'd spent time in Germany. I'd spent three years in Austria. I was very familiar with the German influence. So uh, it felt like I was stepping back and it was in time. And, in, you know, you'd go into a bar or something and you get the German beer or you get German food. It was very common and people spoke German on the street so it was it was very um familiar to me but uh it so it was really weird to me because I hadn't had this was completely different to other cities and towns in Africa and so you know if you think about it the the majority of Africa when it was colonized was colonized by the English, the French and the Portuguese. And this was the only area where Germany, and I'm not sure, but I think Angola was as well, but Angola was in the middle of a civil war. So I didn't go over there to see. Uh, yeah. So it was a re really interesting contrast to what I had just been in, uh, going through the desert. So the lessons I learnt in my travels to Namibia were very clear. I, I remember my trip very clearly through it because you now I had spent two years in Africa and I was used to people everywhere. You know, you'd stop in the middle of nowhere in the countryside and you'd set up camp and be no one around you. Within half an hour, you'd have 30 to 50 people surrounding you just watching you but in Namibia you didn't have that it was much less populated obviously it was a desert it was harder to survive you know the sand people survived but it wasn't as populated so you you really got to be able to immerse yourself into the nature without having to the having the the people around and so it was beautiful you know first off ex uh, experiencing the extremes with the temperatures from the negative digits in the mornings all the way up to your know, high 30s to 40 at night time this is celsius uh extremes that the water there were you know no water you'd find the pools of water but um most most of the time it was desert so you didn't you didn't see see as much um you know, saw a lot of wildlife down at Kalahari but in the Nanib desert there wasn't as much you saw the evidence of them with their their tracks because most of the animals in the Nanib are um, nocturnal so they're out at night and of course we're sleeping at night so in the morning you just see the tracks of them and most of them are the you know your reptiles and your uh, amphibians and that so so uh, it's a completely different way of 
surviving a different ecosystem over there um the colors absolutely the colors were amazing the the reds and the oranges and the the peach color and the creams of the desert and the whites of the salt pans the contrasting and the vegetation being so different really it's really strange uh the people the people were amazing the the bushman people you know i've always had an interest in how cultures come about and pay particular attention to the migration routes of the different types of people such as the zulu people and always and how they influenced the local populations and then you have this the sand people and they're completely different and they look different uh, and if you'd watched that movie, you'd know they, they talk with the click of their, I can't do it, of in their language. And uh, I, what I did find out was it very common in their language, but it was, um, it actually, the clicks are quite common in a lot of languages in Southern Africa, including Zulu and, uh, and other ones. So it wasn't solely in the, sand people that that clicked when they talked but um they definitely did a lot more and i remember in in lindhoit you, you met a few of them and uh the, the talking way had no idea but um i didn't spend much time with them um then the other thing another lesson was again back to talking about me again uh, putting myself, pushing myself past my limits again. There I was, six and a half months pregnant, halfway up Big Daddy, the biggest sand dunes in the world. Absolutely pounding my heart, pounding out of my chest, going, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What decision did I make here? And really in a way regretting what I did but at the same time absolutely feeling very achieved when I, re I reached the top um, and being able to see the view and know that I actually climbed you know the highest sand dunes in the world at six and a half months pregnant uh, and but still you know if something had happened if I collapsed or anything like this it would have been caused a lot of issues um, so I don't suggest you do that. Uh, it's really hard on your body. Um, but and it, it, regardless, even if you weren't just climbing that mountain and that, that sand dune and, you know, one, one foot up, slide back to another foot up, slide back to was just exhausting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everyone was, feel, everyone was that, that did actually climb it, felt it at the end you know we were exhausted and, and don't forget we had just you know a few days prior had climbed down and up fish river canyon so our bodies were still very tired and here we were climbing the biggest sand dunes in the world anyway you, you only do it once and it was a great thing to do uh and then lastly Windhoek when I went to see the capital of Windhoek and and get, I got the German influence flashback and it was good to to be exposed again to the German culture and uh, and appreciate it, but it also 
let me know that I actually had no regrets leaving. I didn't miss it. Uh, it was nice because it was familiar, but it was something that I could easily leave behind. And I was ready for my next sort of life of, uh, you know, soon to become a first-time mother and start my new life. So I was happy to have a short visit and, and move on. And so Namibia was, was vast, very, uh, what's the word, not, you know, not, not highly populated, unique in what it offers as a tourist or a traveller. The animals are wilder. They tend to run away. Uh, the vegetation is so unique. It's a challenging environment. This was back in 95, so there may, may be more luxuries now, but I don't know. But it was a, um, a, a, an amazing trip. And so I'll leave it there for this episode and next episode I'll, I'll move we move on to uh Botswana and so I'll um I will catch up with you then like always I want to leave you with a thought to consider what is your environmental and cultural footprint when you travel how are you showing up to the country and the culture you are showing up with to make a better interaction for all concerned? Leaving the environment as you found it, reducing your impact on local resources and cultures to come out with such a positive outlook for both the local population and environment and yourself. Okay, please follow my podcast if you're enjoying what you are hearing and share it to others so they too may be inspired. I will catch you next time.